Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith as we mark Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. Dylan sold tens of millions of albums, wrote more than 500 songs, recorded by more than 2,000 artists. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature five years ago. Shortly, we'll explore the influence of faith on his music. Later too, we'll hear from humanist Brian Whiteside about his work as a celebrant and his call on the government to remove the requirement of religious oaths for holders of high office in Ireland. But first, American singer-songwriter and author Bob Dylan was born Robert Allen Zimmerman 80 years ago into a Jewish migrant family. However, in the late 1970s, he converted to evangelical Christianity. My guests tonight have an insight into the man, his music and his faith. Joining us is Dr. Michael Booth, who lectures in the Department of English at University College Cork. He's the author of Shakespeare of Conceptual Blending, a book that considers how poetry works. And this, he suggests, is true for Dylan as for Shakespeare. And joining us from Philadelphia this evening is singer-songwriter Wesley Stace. Since 1988, he's released many albums under the name John Wesley Harding, the title of Dylan's eighth studio album. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Michael, can I start with you? Can we consider Bob Dylan to be religious at all? Well, um, as recently as when he published his memoir Chronicles in uh, 2004, Dylan identified himself as a praying man in, in that, which I guess is, is a fairly recent word on the subject. And it's, it's not a surprising word to me. Um, I think when a lot of people think of the question of Dylan and faith, they may think of that part of his career around 1980 uh, when he was recording gospel albums and uh, with a born-again Christian message. But really, I think of, of Dylan's uh, faith in the context of his, his whole uh, career right, right from the beginning. Um, so my understanding is that, that uh, Dylan grew up in a Jewish family in, in Hibbing, Minnesota, and had, had a religious education that would have strongly equipped him with familiarity with, in particular, the Old Testament stories and scenarios and parables that would have have supplied his mind with a great deal of, of material that's 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 there in in the wider Christian culture of America, but perhaps more strongly present in Dylan's awareness um, as the the many strange strains of American Christianity would have would have flowed into his his art. Well, see, Michael mentioned there the you know the the conversion uh, towards the uh, end of the seventies didn't go down well with the fans. Well, yeah, that's right. In Dylan's career, you know, as uh, you ju- as was just said, there's a Jewish childhood, teenage upbringing, I suppose, something to rebel against, something to come back to later in life. There's a definitive Christian period. And there have been books written about that. I mean, there was, you know, Stephen Pickering wrote a book in the 70s about the Jewish search in Bob Dylan. And then there was this Christian period and then, you know, other people have suggested that, in fact, if you're going to look upon him in faith and religious terms, you might look in a more Zen direction. You know, somebody who's kind of transcended, doesn't like what official religion uh, or everything it offers and doesn't offer. And that in Dylan, we could see more of a Zen uh, approach to art where you hold two things that are opposites together and expose yourself to everything. And But what... It has become very interesting in Dylan's spiritual quest, which nobody could deny is a part of his art and writing, that that's undeniable, is that if you look at the last album, it mentions St. John, St. Peter, the Holy Spirit, the City of God, 
It mentions the Holy Grail. It mentions Armageddon. It, he's steeped in this religious language. And in the songs currently, you have a really strange mix, I think, an interesting mix of Old Testament, I'll cut out your eyes, retribution, eye for an eye, and the ever-loving, beautiful forgiveness of, of New Testament Christianity. And it makes for a very strange mix in some of the new songs. And to just finish this thought that I realized has become slightly lengthy. What I would say is that on a brilliant song like Goodbye Jimmy Reed on Rough and Rowdy Ways, the last album, that uses the language of the pulpit to tell a story, some story, or to message Jimmy Reed. Now, Jimmy Reed was not a man of the pulpit. He was a hard drinking, rampant alcoholic whose epilepsy unfortunately was not diagnosed because they thought it was DTs. He was a purveyor of the electric blues. He wrote Bright Lights and Big City and many other great songs and Dylan sings this song to him. Now, the one thing we know, you're right, of course, Bob Dylan's a praying man. Of course, he is a spiritual man on many levels. But the one thing he keeps saying in interviews that I think is really interesting at the moment or over the last 10, 20 years is, and I'm gonna quote a couple of them. I find the religiosity and philosophy in the music. I don't find it anywhere else. Songs like I Saw the Light, that's my religion. Yeah. I don't adhere to rabbis, preachers, evangelists, all of that. I've learned more from the songs than I've learned from any of this kind of entity. The songs are my lexicon, I believe the songs. He said that to Newsweek in 1996. And I think that's the key to it, yeah. is the simple transcendence of the thoughts of that old time music, the bluegrass, the idea man is a sinner. And one day, if you repent, there will be a glorious situation. Situation. And I think that's the key to the whole thing. But it's so transcendent, that uplifting feeling. And he knows he can do that to us, too. He yeah. can do to us what Jimmy Reed does to him. And to me, that is Dylan's, you know, I, I, it's all generalizing. Yes, there's a, there's a secular communion experience in folk song, tradition and popular song in which Dylan is deeply grounded. And that is, I'd say, continuous with, with religious forms of experience. So, so it's not surprising that Dylan should be able to find his, his spirituality in, in music. And, and, you know, I think there was a time when he was on the edge of it in the 60s, making that electric music that he was called Judas for making. Yes. You know, and and I think he was lost in the music. He was creating something out of his control. He was destroying it as he created it and nearly destroyed himself in the process. So I think salvation is always going to be a part of that in his mind. Michael, could you get us a, an illustration, I suppose, really, of, of the impact of faith on Dylan's music? Well, right from the start, you can see uh, biblical language in Dylan's songwriting, um, as, for instance, with his song, When the Ship Comes In, um, <clears throat> which in, in one line mentions both the, um, the drowning of Pharaoh's army and the defeat of Goliath, uh, and in the culmination of this song, which is a really energetic example, it, it's it's one of the earliest examples I can think of of, of Dylan's um, prophetic mode of uh, of utterance. Um, and very unusually, it's an upbeat version of that. And, and he'll he'll have more grim versions of it later, with hard rain's going to fall and all along the watchtower and so on. But but uh, yes, um, when the ship comes in, that that's one to uh, to check out for biblical language. <laughs> Bob Dylan, When the Ship Comes In. And of course, we're talking about Bob Dylan and his music on the occasion of his 80th birthday. Wesley, if I, I can take the next question to you about that. If 
Dylan didn't have his Jewish background, his his Old Testament, uh, would he have been left short? Yes. <laughs> Next. No, I, I think I think I think I, whatever makes up the great stew of Bob Dylan's consciousness and mind that contains multitudes and makes these, you know, I lists of names that if you take them out of context really mean nothing but if you put them all together that's when it starts to make sense it's the whole song that you have to hear analyzing a single line of Dylan except for the beautiful poetry and the assonance and the cleverness of the words is pretty fruitless I think it's it's whole feelings that he's giving you yes and I think particularly with um you know, here's another thing that he said that I just saw that I wrote out. Here we go. You can find all my philosophy in those old songs. I believe, it, I believe in a God of time and space. But if people ask me about that, my impulse is to point them back towards those songs. So then he's talking about bluegrass songs again. And that, I believe in a God of time and space, is interesting to me because I'm not an expert in faith, but what that says to me is God there's Jesus, and that's a thing, and that was kind of the Christian period's quite Jesus-y. But in fact, the idea of a God in time and space transcends the whole particular Christian mm. application for it, becomes something that you can find in these songs. It becomes a, a kind of, not spiritualism, but a transcendent, a transcendent philosophy. But there's also an example of Dylan quoting, I think, Joyce, or certainly paraphrasing him about uh, hoping that he would remain an enigma and in 100 years' time they'd still be trying to figure out what he was meaning. And, and so that, that gave him a fairly big scope when you start putting faith into your music. Well, he, want, he didn't want to be a prophet. He wanted to be Elvis Presley. He wanted to be Little Richard. He, that's what he wanted to do for people. But there is... Look at Little Richard. There is a, a spiritual, look at Al Green. These, the great people, the great rock singers are it, it, intimately involved with that. So was Elvis, lots of Christian recordings. They wanted to be inspirational. They could whip a crowd up in the tent revival way. And that's what Dylan has always done too, in his laid back way. And I think two reasons that um, I find Dylan um, spiritually uh, valuable and and this is not in the context of his of his Christian explicitly Christian work but at his best I think his songs are have always been full of morality and always been full and very serious about the experience of love in all of its complexity and so on the question of morality, I mean right and wrong, justice and injustice, compassion for those who have been wronged, indignation at wrongdoers, and that's part of what gives the, the work a certain um, solidity. And then the, the songs of love that, that Dylan writes, you know, are the, the soundtrack to, to many people's lives, and partly he writes about uh, love as something ennobling and redeeming, and he has some wonderful, beautiful songs in, in that vein. But he also is very aware of love as something that's insufficient, painful, difficult, shot through with complexity, uh, and tipping into betrayal, recrimination, jealousy, and and that's really the 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 Dylan that's most famous in popular culture, I suppose. The author of Like a Rolling Stone, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. The sort of the sort of burned, uh, scarred Dylan. 
but he's giving us something valuable in all of his portraits of this human experience, you know, and, and, and I, I will just point in the direction of faith one last time there and, and say that um, I, I suppose that the, the poet Shelley has a line where he says about poets that they learn in suffering what they teach in song. And I think that must be very true of, of Dylan and that um, his journey towards faith must come out of a human experience of suffering that has given us a lot of uh, amazing poetry. Wesley? Well, I was only going to say that and another version of love in his work is the beautiful metaphysical tightrope that he sometimes sings on, uh, uh, where you don't really know whether it's God or a woman, and it really doesn't matter anymore what the belief is in or who he's meeting in the garden or who he met in the summertime or what can I, you know, it, it, there's that kind of thing. And of course, you're right about love because he's certainly written so brilliantly in so many songs and he's the only person I think to write a song title where he tries to explain love with an equation which is on bring it all back home because yes. the original subtitle is love minus zero over no limit so yes, love that, minus zero. I mean that's very clever <laughs> that that, is... that's, that's a song we really should hear I think in this discussion uh, it's got some beautiful lines uh, in it um uh, my love. Some some speak of the future. My love speaks softly. She knows too much to argue or to judge. So you know, the, and, the... and she knows there's no success like failure, and failure is no success at all. Which is a line I've been puzzling over, not puzzling over, enjoying for its Zen complexity and koan nature of the my need to think about that line over forty. 40 years I've been thinking about that line on and off. And, uh, and of course, there's a lot of interesting Kafka references. Michael Booth, Wesley Stace, thank you both for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Well, our next guest this evening is a humanist, celebrant and campaigner for a secular Ireland. In the Irish Times this week, he wrote that the swearing of religious oaths for positions of high office in Ireland, such as judges and the presidency, is hypocritical. Brian Whiteside, welcome to The Leap of Faith. We'll talk in a moment about the issue of religious oaths, but first, can I go back a step for a moment? You recently were the celebrant at the funeral of the late poet Seamus Dean. I did, and what an honour it was uh, to, to do so. I've been a humanist celebrant for, I think it's 16 years now. I was very lucky. I got out of uh, a career in business at a relatively young age. I was only 53 uh, so I got out in 2002 and wondered what I would do next. And I chanced to attend a funeral, the father of a, a friend of mine in, in London. I was over in London and it was a humanist funeral. And I'd been wondering, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I just said, that's what I'm going to do. And I think my timing was good because Ireland was just, I think, on the cusp of change. And I started to conduct humanist uh, funerals and in time weddings and naming ceremonies, you know, ceremonies to mark the milestones of life in what I would describe as a very personal and meaningful way, but obviously not a religious way. And Ireland being Ireland, and that's with the world being the world, everyone was more used to all of these life events being marked in a religious context, but I, often wondered why, if people aren't religious, why would they do it in a religious context? So that's that's the sort of story so far. And yes, my most recent one was, was uh, Seamus Dean's. And, you know, it was a high profile funeral. It was attended 
by our, our president. So there's always, I suppose, a certain atmosphere and um, there, there's all the protocols, of course, that go mm. with that. Mm. And, you know, it, it was a great honor for the family. I mean, I met uh, Seamus Dean's, some of his family on Saturday um, to plan the funeral. You know, part of my role is working with the family. They, they probably have an idea of what, how they want it to be, but most people have never done this before. So I helped them to structure the ceremony and to look at the, the, the structure and the content and the duration. You know, you don't want suddenly to run out of time and find there's another two people who want to speak. So it, it takes a little bit of planning, but it's all very easy. And it, it gives me, I have to say, a lot of satisfaction uh, to be involved in this sort of thing. And a high profile one like Seamus Dean is always a big occasion. Let, let's uh, satiate my curiosity for a moment, because if you look at, at the way we are in Ireland, we would have a, a couple of people on a different scale. We'd have the lapsed Catholic, maybe born into it. We would have the uh, agnostic, the person who's holding on to a hmm. belief in something, the atheist. And yeah. can I put the humanist on that scale as well? What is the scale? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a funny one. I mean, people often ask me, you know, what's a humanist? Why don't you just call yourself an atheist? Well, I have a lot of friends who describe themselves as atheists, but atheist by definition doesn't really give any sense of a moral uh, part to it. Do you know what I mean? An atheist simply says, I don't believe in God. Whereas I would define humanism as an ethical life sense that, that places human values at the center of its philosophy. And I think it's, it's probably for people who place their understanding of existence on the evidence of the natural world and its evolution, rather than in belief in a supernatural being. And I mean, I would hasten to add that I and any humanist that I know, we don't knock religious people. We just don't adhere to that worldview. Um, and an interesting thing, I mean, over the years, I've met so many people arranging funerals, arranging weddings, and all of that sort of thing. And very often, you, 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 you meet people and you say, why are you looking for this type of ceremony? And they say, well, we're not really very religious. You know, no one seems to be comfortable saying, actually, we're totally not religious. They say, we're not really very religious. But then after a bit of a chat, they say, actually, I'm not religious at all. But they have to sort of almost go through the gears, if you know what I mean. I'm wondering how many funerals you may have actually officiated at at this stage. Do you know? Coming up, coming up to 500. Now, at 500, that, that's a sizable enough figure to get some evidence from that, because I, I'm wondering what what is the what's what's happening there when if you were to look at another uh, ceremony which might be carried out in a in a catholic or or church of ireland church there would be a belief a belief in the life ever after and reincarnation absolutely what's happening at the humanist uh, event well it, it's very interesting because when i started doing this there was really no template for it and <laughs> i hesitate before saying this but i basically made it up as i went along and Somebody asked me a challenging question, and I'm glad that they did, because it made me think and made me come up with something. And the question they asked me was exactly what you said. In a religious context, you're promised everlasting life, you have heaven, all of that. What do the humanists have to offer? 
So what I do is I talk about the continuum of life and how your influence goes on through those you've touched in life after you're gone. This is the legacy that you leave behind. You know, very often, not always, very often it'll be an elderly person, Seamus Dean, you know, he was 81. He left five children, he left 11 grandchildren. And I talked at his ceremony, and I think there's no problem saying this, I think it's, it's, it's all right to, to share it. Um, I talked about the legacy that he left through his family, his children and his children's children. And of course, in, in, in Seamus Dean's case, I also emphasized the great body of work that he left behind. He left a public legacy as well, both in a national and indeed an international sense. You were quite engaged during the week on another topic, writing in one of the national papers about the role of the religious oath in Ireland in 2021. What's happened there? Absolutely. Well, I'm actually no longer a member of the Humanist Association. Uh, I just decided when I got into my 70s, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of retire from that. But I've still got lots of good friends there. And when I was very involved and I was a director, um, I was very involved in a dialogue process. And I won't bore you with too many details, but this actually stemmed from the Lisbon Treaty. And uh, we all remember the Lisbon Treaty because there were two of them. Two goes at it, exactly. <laughs> two goes at it. Yeah. Um, and the, the Lisbon Treaty, one of the, one of the clauses in the Lisbon Treaty uh, said that all state governments should enter into what they called structured dialogue with religious leaders and other non-confessional philosophical groups. So the Humanist Association sort of put their hand up and said, I think we're one of those. So we, this was back in 2007, and we entered into dialogue with the government. And, and in preparation for our first meeting, which was in 2007 with Bertie Ahern and his government, uh, we published and launched and distributed uh, a document called Equality for the Non-Religious. And this set out all the areas in our constitution, in our laws and simply in custom and practice where religious people where non-religious people were put at a disadvantage and indeed discriminated against mm. and i always said that the simplest example of one of those was the requirement for a religious oath for high office and for the office of president for the council of state and for judges uh, the the person must make a religious oath and, you know, to take up office. And we felt that, whereas that was probably understandable in 1937 in the Ireland of de Valera and, um, and McQuaid, you know, John Charles McQuaid, and we felt it, it, it didn't fit in a modern secular republic mm. in the 21st century. And, you know, over the years, we've seen so many changes. Ireland has become much more liberal. We've you know, if you go back to 1937 and fast forward to now, we, 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 we won contraception, divorce, yeah. same-sex marriage, all of those things. Mm. But I often thought that one of the dinosaurs that was left there was this requirement for a religious oath, uh, which seems inappropriate today. But what if the person taking the office is themselves committed to, to their faith and wishes to make that decree? Well, then there isn't an issue. But if the person is not religious, 
And the point I made in my article, in my recent article, is that we've been constantly bringing this up over the years, and um, we're still holding our breath. You made another interesting point in the article that some very senior church people could also find it extremely offensive for non-believers to take yes, a religious yes. oath. I, I had, I've met some extraordinarily interesting people um, of very diverse views over the last 16 years. And I met one very eminent, I, le I leave his name out, but one very eminent um, church leader, a uh, Catholic leader who was greatly respected and loved by nearly everybody, I think, certainly me. And in a private meeting with him, he did say to me that he found it offensive for non-religious people to have to uh, make a, take a religious oath and he would favor change. Indeed, in, in, in a letter following up my piece, a, a letter in the Irish Times from a theologian made the same point and also said that he felt that somebody who sort of under duress had to make a religious oath if they were not religious, it could be damaging to them. It could be damaging to their integrity. And I think that's a very fair point. Brian Whiteside, thank you for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. And that's your Leap of Faith for this week. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.